In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, you may be seated. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me begin at the end of the story. Today's reading from Paul's letter to the Colossians begins with an awe-inspiring description of of our Messiah, Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the creator of all things, the firstborn from the dead, who made peace by the blood of his cross. Only a few verses later, Paul informs us that that very Christ is in us, our hope of glory. Of course, in our present condition, that is much too much to absorb. But Francis, our saint for the day, was heaven-bent to experience that hope of glory. To get there, he took the gospel more literally than an evangelical fundamentalist and tried to actually do exactly what Christ did and taught. Early on, Francis picked up an understanding that poverty was central to knowing and following Christ. It is Christ's poverty, as understood by Francis of Assisi, that we will focus on today. As many of you know, Francis, born in 1181, grew up with the advantages of middle-class wealth. His father did well as a cloth merchant, so Francis had the luxury of a bit of education and enough leisure time to make up love songs and play them under the windows of his girlfriends. He was likable, gregarious, and fun-loving. And then the war between Assisi and her sister city, Perugia, started and Francis was conscripted. He was likely no more than a teenager when his sensitive and creative temperament was subjected to the horror of medieval warfare. His friends fell at his side, struck by spears, arrows, or blunt instruments. Francis himself was taken prisoner. We have perhaps known people who were traumatized by war, and struggled with PTSD for years following their military experience. There was no such diagnosis for Francis, but we do know that his, on his release and return to his hometown, he was a different person. The partying and singing stopped. Instead, he wandered about the countryside alone, stopping from time to time to pray in the little broken-down chapel of San Damiano, and perhaps other such places. He was homeless and with little else to do, so he sat or knelt before the crucifix for long hours. We can guess that he attended daily Mass and heard the Gospels read from the Latin Vulgate, perhaps interpreted into the early vernacular Italian by the priest. What does one do with the story of the rich man who comes to Jesus looking for eternal life? Remember how Jesus looks at him with love and gives him an invitation? 
There is one thing you are lacking, says Jesus. Go tell what, sell what you own and give the money to the poor and come and follow me. His disciples were pretty concerned about the whole encounter. And Jesus addresses them as children. Children, he says, how difficult it is to enter into the kingdom of God. And his disciples respond, but Jesus, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, for humans, this is impossible. But for God, nothing is impossible. Francis surely wanted to reverse the outcome of this story by asking God to do the impossible for him. Francis also must have heard what we heard this morning. Don't seek food and clothing. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. You do better to store up a spiritual treasure instead of an earthly one. The needy for Francis especially included the lepers, the poorest of the medieval poor. Francis gave to them with lavish generosity, not only money and clothing, but also his affection, hugs, and kisses. We can imagine Francis hearing the story of Jesus telling a potential follower, foxes have dens and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Francis was not scared off. He already knew what it was to sleep with the homeless and in whatever place he could find when the sun went down. At some point, he was given the name Poverello, the little poor man. He liked the name. Early on, Francis was summoned to ecclesiastical court by his father. And standing before the bishop, he dramatically rips off his clothes and returns them to his father, saying, From now on, I will say, Our Father who art in heaven. On another occasion, with the same dramatic flourish, Francis loudly empties every coin from his money bag into the collection box at St. Peter's in Rome. And then he swapped his fancy clothes with a beggar and began begging in French, though we are told he did not speak French very well. Those were the early days. It is hard not to be impressed at such intense desire to follow Jesus. But I suspect his radical and ostentatious choices actually began to change him as the years went by. He begins to see poverty as something beyond these dramatic acts. We are all aware that Francis had a close relationship with nature. He taught his followers, our only home is the whole world. To him, this meant everything in nature is God's gift to us, not just the pretty things. This takes the sentimentality out of Francis's love for nature. Yes, we can enjoy the wonderful stories of Francis taming the wolf at Gubbio. 
and on another occasion making friends with a cicada. But Francis also felt that the suffering dealt out by nature was to be equally accepted. Whether it be stormy wind or rain or cold or heat, God could be found in all of it. This understanding for Francis made nature part of a life of radical unprotectedness. This shift from the external poverty to an internal poverty continues for Francis. For example, Francis names the group of men that followed him as Friars Minor, Little Brothers. He teaches little brothers shouldn't have authority over others. He explains that to be little brothers, they mustn't even take jobs that put them in position of supervising others. Instead, they are to be at their mercy. This understanding of poverty is again a matter of becoming vulnerable, a matter of giving up personal control. Francis, like Jesus, developed a habit of turning to the wilderness for prayer. He, often he lived alone in a cave for 40 days. And Francis's early biographer, Thomas of Celano, writes, he frequently chose solitary places so that he could direct his mind completely to God. More often than not, his meditation was on the passion of Christ, and he sought to internalize it until it emerged in his own behavior. In silence and solitude, he can imagine Jesus asking the question, Can you drink the cup of suffering that I am about to drink? Francis realizes that there is a deep connection between suffering the indignities of poverty and sharing God's compassionate authority. Poverty of spirit is nothing less than the abandonment of the will. When that occurs, a space opens up for the love of God to become infinitely precious. Thomas of Celano writes, Francis was often suspended in such a sweetness of contemplation, caught up out of himself, he could not reveal what he had experienced because it went beyond all human comprehension. The Franciscan St. Bonaventure described how the little brothers prayed in the example of Jesus, I mean, in the example of Francis. They devoted themselves to mental rather than vocal prayer, he writes. Since they had little access to prayer books, they focused their attention on Christ's cross, which they studied continually day and night. Somewhere near the end of Francis's 44 years, Francis must have been meditating about how Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He imagined how Jesus patiently accepted the rejection of the religious authorities, the betrayal of his disciple Judas, and the abandonment of his friends and followers. He realized that receiving abuse and rejection 
by loved ones may be the hardest of all suffering. This story, I believe, reveals the culmination of Francis's view on the on poverty of spirit. Francis calls Brother Leo right, and Brother Leo responds, "Look, I am ready." Right, he said. What perfect joy is! And Francis says a messenger arrives and says that all the masters of Paris have entered the order and become friars minor. Right, this is not perfect joy. Or that all the prelates, archbishops, bishops beyond the mountains, as well as the king of France and the king of England have entered the order. Right, this is not true joy. Again, that our brothers have gone to the non-believers and converted all of them to the faith. And again, that I have so much grace from God that I heal the sick and perform many miracles. I tell you, true joy does not consist in any of these things. What then is perfect joy, says Brother Leo? I return from Perugia, says Francis, and arrive here in the dead of the night. It is winter time, muddy and so cold that icicles have formed on the edges of my habit and keep striking my legs so that blood flows from the wounds. Freezing, covered with mud and ice, I come to the gate, and after I've knocked and called for some time, a brother comes and asks, Who are you? Brother Francis, I answer. Go away, he says. This is not a decent hour to be wandering about. You may not come in. And when I insist, he replies, Go away. You are simple and stupid. Don't come back to us again. There are many of us like you here. We don't need you. I stand again at the door and I say, for the love of God, take me in tonight. And he replies, I will not. Go to the monks down the road and ask there. I tell you this, if I bear this with patience and do not become upset, this would be perfect joy. As well as true virtue and salvation of my soul. What is Francis saying here? Where has his focus on Christ's poverty brought him? Let me suggest that he has come to see that his own suffering is a participation in the suffering of Christ. The suffering that God allows is doing a work in him. The salvation that is impossible for humans is possible with God. And the perfect joy is none other than coming into the glorious presence of God through the work of Christ in us. That work is destroying what Paul calls the flesh. God is replacing the self-centered self with himself. If we succeed by our best efforts to bring the whole world to Christ, 
that will not bring to true joy any more than it will earn us salvation. Here's how Jesus himself explains salvation in the context of his own crucifixion. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Francis understood that following Jesus must end up where Jesus ended up. His love led him to suffering. Not my will, but yours, dear Father. Perfect joy? We are not suffering alone. All our suffering ends in love capitalized. Finally, we, we agree with Francis and Paul saying, We also rejoice in our sufferings because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Please stand. I believe in one God.